I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. Really glad that you're with us. Uh, Seth, welcome back. We, uh, we're upgrading again. Back to the original original uh, host. Your word's of not show. mine. Your word's not mine. Yeah, it was it was fun getting to listen to the last two episodes. We had we had international reach for this podcast <laughs> while I was international. Yeah, our producer was like, "Man, we're getting people from the Czech Republic listening to this." I said, "That's Seth." <laughs> that was me. So, Automatic uh, downloads. I did go. not listen to it in the Czech Republic, but I did download it in the Czech Republic. There you go. Well, uh, welcome back. And uh, for those of you that are just uh, kind of joining us on this podcast, normally what happens is Seth and I are kind of just talking about kind of. Uh, interesting theological and cultural issues, trying to sort of assess them, evaluate them, um, see how our own hearts are kind of bought into some of the cultural stories that need to be changed and reformed by the biblical story. But right now we've been really kind of doing follow-up episodes every week related to the series we've been doing at Gateway called Countercultural Convictions. And so this is the last of those episodes. And so today we're going to talk about salvation. Um, But let's talk maybe just briefly on the front end. Where are we going from here, Seth? After this, so this will be the last of our weekly episodes. We'll go back to probably twice a month, every other week kind of a thing. Yeah, we'll do that, and we'll go back to our typical pattern of addressing random things that we find to be interesting in the moment or things we're getting a lot of questions about, and we want to dive into that. There are a handful of other topics, like we'll probably do some more on end times. That's been a big pressing issue, both in terms of the way the culture thinks about it and the way the church thinks about it. Where's the world headed? How are we going to get there? And there's also probably more room to talk about even just some of the things that are critiquing within evangelicalism. So not just critiquing the world of non-Christians, but also the world of our world, like whether it's different aspects of Reformed theology, different aspects of men, women, gender, kind of diving in on more self-critique than even just out there critique. Yeah, and that, that's such an important point that I feel like we just can't emphasize enough because the world doesn't need a whole lot more critics in terms of people that are just going to rant and be grumpy about stuff, right? We don't need want more get-off-my-lawn lamb- people. Yeah, so if you want someone to lambast the world out there, there's better people than us to do it. People yeah. are doing that really well. Yeah, and while there's plenty in me that's tempted to do that, I'm not sure how fruitful that is. And Absolutely. so a lot of what we're trying to do is really what you said. It's critique ourselves first. Um, but just realizing we're not somehow set apart from what's going on in the rest of the culture. We're impacted by it. We're influenced by it. We want to... Uh, think through those dynamics. So that's what we're doing in the coming weeks. But today we're going to really kind of talk about this issue of salvation, which is kind of an interesting one, even as you think about um, this series. I mean, this series has been these countercultural convictions. So we've talked about gender and gender identity in particular. We've talked about sexuality. You go, okay, I see how the Christian view of that is countercultural. We looked at vulnerability the vulnerable and generosity and kind of going, okay, I can see maybe how there's some more countercultural thing, but salvation, you know, on one hand I'd go, I don't hear, like no one's talking about salvation. Like no one's using that term. Like that, that word you kind of have to go to church for. And on the other hand, I'd kind of go, and yet everyone's talking about salvation. Absolutely. Even the word salvation that we see in the new Testament 
soter is a word that was often applied to political situations in the first century. That the incoming Caesar, the incoming king, was called the soter, the one who's going to deliver or save society from the present the presiding regime or the or the the outgoing regime that the that the existing administration leadership was things are not the way they're supposed to be but here comes this soter the savior the new caesar and he's going to save his people from the the past political regime and so that regime change salvation language it dominates our political discourse both the left and the right the left is saving everyone from the right and the right saving everyone from the left. And so everyone's looking for deliverance well, it's, it's or political, help. It's marketing, right? Every commercial is in a sense offering a kind of salvation story. Yeah. You're being saved from your boredom, saved from your monotony, saved from your bad way of doing it. Even you think about those clunky commercials where it's like, do you do your dishes like this? And it's like black and white and kind of sped up and someone's fumbling in the dark and oh, dishes. you could have this product and that will save you from the way you've been doing dishes. And, and so salvation is very much located within technology. It's helping us do better what we can't do very well. It's located in politics. The new people and the new policies are going to make the world a better place. It's also located in relationships. You know, the, you're the one who's going to complete me. I'm incomplete, and you're going to save me from being incomplete. And When I think about it, you go, I mean, if, if you ever do go to a bookstore, one of the biggest sections is always the self-help section. And on one hand, it's like, hey, that's great. Let's get some tips. Let's get some hacks. Let's get some kind of ways to do things better. On the other hand, a lot of that really does turn into a kind of self-salvation project. Yeah, I was in, I went into this CrossFit gym in Prague. And so the the uh, owner, main coach was a sweet lady. She works at CrossFit HQ, is kind of a big deal, one of those folks. And people always ask you, what do you do? And at least around Arizona, you say, I'm a pastor. And people even hear a little bit like, well, that's weird. Never talked to a pastor before. Um, sorry, I cussed three weeks ago, or that's you know that's how it typically that's goes. That's what they want to say to you. Yeah, so they, how it ends up going in Arizona, and I and I'm in Prague, which is like at least top five most atheist cities in the world. So oh, I'm a pastor, and she's like, I'm an atheist. I was like, at first, like, just to be clear, not on board with <laughs> what you're about. Yeah. Well, that's and she said, yeah, and actually here a lot of things like CrossFit have replaced religion. It's community building. There's a shared. Uh, methodology here's what we do and here's why we do it so there's ideology there's methodology there's communion there's connection uh you 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 pay a measure of your income to support the the prophet priest who administrates the classes and runs them and writes the program and educates and provides feedback and she said oh in many ways what we do is not that different i'm building a community functioning out of a, a worldview based on how people are meant to flourish and and I was like, yeah. And so recognizing that there's something ordinary to religion, ordinary that people are looking to be set free from their shortcomings or their sins, except for like in CrossFit, the sins are all uh, diabetes and obesity. There's no, nothing sure. more. There's nothing moral. Yeah. Um, but there's uh, being set free from your sedentary lifestyle into a life of mobility or something like that. But that salvation language, religious language, is, uh, it resonates with secular persons, not just religious persons, even though it feels religious. Yeah. When there is this desire, I mean, I think that kind of, uh, that eternity that God's put in our hearts combined with the shame that we just naturally experience because of living in a world where we rebel against God, you know, and you just kind of put that together and you go, okay, now there's this ache. Now there's this desire. Now there's this, okay, I know I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I know the world's not the way it's supposed to be. I want something to fix it. And so salvation is really about that. And so, but this, this message, and it was great to have Josh Watt back with us. It was cool to have yeah, I him. Miss that and, guy. Yeah, me too. And um, to have him kind of be able to be back and, and preach about it. 
you know, it, it, on one hand, just the Christian message of salvation is inherently countercultural. Um, in, in another way, though, the, where our church is located in, in kind of a more reformed tradition as it relates to the doctrine of salvation or uh, soteriology, as it relates to that, we're even kind of countercultural within what you might think of as a, kind of a broader uh, American evangelicalism. And Josh said something actually really interesting, and he alluded to it in his message, but but before the sermon, we have kind of a time when we pray with the worship team and the production folks and just kind of talk through, here's what the service is going to be. And I said, hey, kind of, what do you think your message is about? And he said, well, I think it's interesting that um, for the broader world, God's wrath is countercultural. And for the Christian world, God's sovereignty is countercultural. And so I thought it'd be fun in this conversation to kind of just push into that a little bit more. Yeah. Right. We we might say, you know, I think a way to summarize kind of how we think about this is God saves sinners. And Josh made the point of God saves us from himself in a sense, from his wrath. And even just going to someone and saying, like, hey, you need to be saved from the wrath of God, the justice of God, the punishment of God against your sin, many people would find that offensive. Yeah, there's this whole worldview that is underneath the surface. Now, whether people know this or not, it goes it goes back to a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers who really thought that humans were basically good, and the way that they become evil is through socialization, and society makes people evil through repressing their sexuality. Society makes people evil through giving them um, rules and laws, and in particular, society is shaped by religion, causes people to be a bunch of repressed reactive folks kind of like people are hoses and religions come along and stuck their finger in the hose and so out squirting out sideways okay. and that's what makes people evil but if you talk to the vast majority of people overwhelmingly there's this belief even people who have low self-esteem people who uh, really have done a lot of bad things there's this deep-seated belief that i'm a good person i have good intentions even if i've done bad things i have good intentions it's really a small small minority of people like 0.01% who are like the antisocial, clinical, narcissist, crazy people. Those people are bad, but 99 plus percent of us, we're all basically good, trying to do our best job, basically good. And the interesting thing is even those people think they're good. <laughs> yeah, even those people have rationalization for what's going on. Sure. Um, there's a sense of justice, a calculus that's happening to rationalize their decisions and their processes. And so it's just very interesting that if this idea of God's wrath burning against all people without exception is just stinking nuts to the assumed secular mind that says, but people are basically good. Even then, when you think about the concepts of evil or problem, what like problems within society, what makes things evil is that they violate social norms or what makes things evil is they violate the consent of other people. But even thinking through this idea of evil and and demonism and and this like the notion of wrath it's all even if you talk about reparative justice in the way that people like how should we ensure prisons be punitive or reparative well even this idea that locates all of the government's wrath which the government bears the sword according to romans 13 that if all the government can do is repair people it can't punish people which the bible teaches that part of the government's role is to punish evildoers it's not just to repair them but it's also to punish them they're the government in particular, the criminal justice system, which is certainly flawed, but it's still in, like entrusted by God, just like you and I are flawed, but we're entrusted by God for a task. And the task is to punish evil and praise good. So it's to be active in punishing evil. But if you say that all the government can do is repair, you're presuming that people are naturally good and they just need to be educated into 
uh, a higher way of being or this way of progress comes about. And so that's the kind of the myth of progress that people are basically good. And through education and technology, we can help people live into their goodness. We can set them free from what, uh, so even like we think through the way that people think about humans coming into their current sociological position through evolutionary means, meaning that survival, survival of the fittest is what makes us, uh, continue to exist and has made us into humans. And so this evolutionary thought process, well, if that's the case, then all of our pathology, all of our evil in intentions, all of our bad doings are rooted in survival instinct. And so if you can take away people's need for survival instinct by giving them uh, living wages, basic income, access to the right goods and services, then you will remove their need for their survival instinct and then they can start to be good people. And so this whole idea of, you know, uh, poverty is what causes evil or lack of access to certain good services is what causes evil or lack of education is what causes evil. It's all rooted in this view of humanity that they're basically good, but society and survival instincts kind of pressure them into being bad, which, so just talking about God's wrath when that's your assumed worldview is just not going to land. Yeah. What's interesting when I think about even just, you know, it's not like God is just, he's wrathful because he's just ticked off right you know like there's a kind of person who you'd go like this is just an angry person like it takes very little to just set them off, and off they go. <laughs> yeah and i think when we talk about that god has wrath sometimes we might get mixed up about that and communicate that that's what god's like and i think some people have experienced a kind of church experience or or just have assumptions that god must be like that like if it, just give him a chance and he will unload on you but even when we talk about god's wrath it's it's god's wrath toward our sin and toward us because of our sin. Um, it's not that God's just ticked, but it's that our sin deserves it. And yet, you know, I, I'd be curious how you would answer this. Cause I, I've had people say to me like, well, so hold on, hold on. Okay. I get Hitler deserves hell and I get, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But you're telling me that somebody who lives a pretty good life, they're not perfect but they just go through their life. They try to care for their family. They try to do their job. Well, you're telling me that they're going to spend eternity being punished for their sins when they were a pretty, like pretty good part, like forever they're going to be in that position. How do you make sense of that? Yeah. The first thing when I go that direction with my non-Christian friends or even my Christian friends are wrestling with that. It was like, first of all, the fact that I believe the Bible teaches something doesn't mean that I'm always excited about it. Yeah. So I don't walk around thinking like, man, I'm so glad that the doctrine of hell is what it is. <laughs> like, so there's a piece of it that in my own heart, I do feel like there's submission to what God has revealed, what God has said and what God has decided. And there's this aspect of God has decided that this is just sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my heart around it but kind of going, I trust God's goodness and justice and me disagreeing with something or me struggling with something doesn't make it true or false. Yeah. And so that's like the first thing I need to go. It's like, there is an aspect of some of this stuff that I go, it's beyond me, but I trust the Lord. And that's reality. The other aspect of it is just kind of thinking through our wrath is limited because our love is limited. Right? So I, when we moved in our new house, we have gas, uh, pro gas stove okay. the first time. And I've, You're going to love that, by the way. I'm very excited. It's, took, it's wonderful. took me about 75,000 minutes to boil water in my old house, and I'm excited <laughs> to boil water. But the gas stove knobs are like at a place where Jay can reach him. Okay. 
And I saw those and I was like, he's going to touch that crap and blow up our house. <laughs> you know, and I've yet to like yell at Jay, but I ahead of time was like, if he comes close to those, I need to be firm. I need to be more firm than I have been from the belly on no touch. Like that. And he yeah. needs to. Yeah. And so, uh, we were in the house moving in. Jay goes towards the stove, reaches up, turns it. And I hear the gas go, and I go, Jay, no touch, you know, and he flinches back and he looks at me like, and, and that's not exactly wrath, but there's this, because I love my wife, because I love my son, because I love me not being blown up. I'm, I just like, it it was a sober execution Mm. of, I can't, he's almost two. I'm not really in a position yet to totally sell him on, Hey, let's not touch this because I'm not going to be there every time to like redirect him into like, Hey, Hey Jay, there's an invisible gas that comes out of the thing and you just don't want it. He'd be like, can I, yeah. I want to see it. <laughs> see the carbon monoxide alarms? Right. Those things will beep and we'll have right. to run. And cool. yeah, and so there's just this. Uh, be- well, but what I like about that too is it. you said sober minded, right? It, it was a, it was a thoughtful choice. It wasn't you just kind of losing it because, you know, a lot of times when we get mad at our kids, it's because they embarrass us or it's because they make us look bad or, you know, whatever you're going like, no, out of my love. I'm going to premeditatedly you know, have a strong reaction to something that threatens my love. Yeah, and so so if if wrath is is the kind of the negative emotion or the negative energy, right? Because love is, you know, positive. I don't like the word energy because it sounds all sedona-y, but you know like <laughs> we bring our presence and our presence has an energy to it, you know, yeah, like we sure. take away ad from uh that that was calculated like based because I love my wife and my son and my life and I love our family and our house. It's like, I, ha- I have to burn against this in order to protect it. And so there is this reality that because God loves infinitely and we love finitely, his wrath will be relatively infinite compared to our finite love. And so we, we're only capable of a certain degree of anger mm. because we're only capable of a certain degree of love. understanding and appreciating and you know god's wrath is you'd go hey god's love and god's wrath are not opposites that can't be you know they're not mutually exclusive they're actually they come they come together yeah wrath is a product of love absolutely it is and even that like we we can talk about how you think about politics people get all dysfunctionally engaged in national politics and they like it's they care way too much and they're way too angry and Part of that is even just good to say. Part of it is like they just love the United States of America, right? And so, yeah. so, so like even seeing that like disordered wrath is somewhat a product of disordered love. Like if you if you love America too much, you're going to be too wrathful at the other political party, right? That's yeah, that if sure. your love for America supersedes your love for like family and God and church, you know, which loving America is great, but it should not supersede these other loves. That when your loves are disordered, then your wraths end up being disordered. Yeah, that's and so that's part of the deal. Sure. Yeah. So there's kind of the the non Christian objection of uh, to God's wrath, uh, but the other part, and this is um, you know what you and I spend a lot of time, especially I think about our rooted classes, we get questions about this. You and I have taught courses about this. Is within kind of the Christian world, there's a lot of objection to God's sovereignty. Yeah. And I'll tell you kind of how I experienced that the first time I remember. I was in uh, college, just had finished my freshman year of college and was playing on a Christian baseball team, Athletes in Action, 
uh, where college baseball players from all over the country would come and we'd, we'd uh, play games, you know, baseball games, not like board games. But uh, we'd do discipleship. We would never play board games. Yeah. Yeah. We'd do discipleship during the day and then we'd play and we'd play against all these you know, teams that weren't necessarily, it wasn't like a Christian league. It was just, we were a Christian team within that league. And so we would do discipleship and share the gospel with them and do different stuff like that. Well, at the beginning of that summer, I sat down with a friend um, and he, I said, Hey, what's new? And he said, well, I became a Calvinist. And I said, Oh, and I had not heard that word. I didn't have a negative association with that word. I didn't have a positive association. I was just like, Oh, what's that? And he said, well, basically I've come to believe that, you know, I'm saved because before time began, God chose me and pursued me and uh, called me to himself and that I'm saved because of God's sovereignty, not because of my choices. And I went, ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> and that kicked off really a few months on that team of a lot of, you know, you're coming cr Christians from lots of different perspectives, denominations, backgrounds, geographical parts of the country. And it was like a hot, contentious issue all summer um, and through that, through the process of that, I became convinced that he was actually right. Um, and even though I think a lot of, I hesitate to use the term Calvinism because it's so misunderstood that I, it, but if I could define the terms of it, I'd be okay using it. Um, but that's some of what we were talking about. And when you start elevating God's sovereignty, you get some real Christian resistance to it. And, uh, that's what I experienced on that team. And that's what I've experienced as we've taught it along the way is we, we really struggle with it. Um, why do you think we struggle with that? Or why does the kind of, you know, right at this point in history, American Christianity tend to struggle with that truth? You know, there's two aspects. When we talk about sovereignty, there's really two doctrines that we talk about all the time. There's a doctrine of providence and the doctrine of sovereignty. The doctrine of providence has to do with God's ability to control all things. Like he presides, like he, uh, he's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, there's no accidents. R.C. Sproul talked about how there's no maverick molecule in the whole universe, that God is the controller of history, that God doesn't make predictions. He makes promises and he brings them to pass. He's not like looking down the quarter of time and saying like, how are things going to play out? He's controlling the quarter of time. He's running history. He is the author of history. And so that's action of providence. That one's hard because... We go like, do I make real choices? Mm, sure. Do I, am I just a programmed robot? And what about all this evil in the world? Yes. So that's providence. Sovereignty has to do with God's right, right? To be like, you think about like sovereignty politically, like a sovereign state. Like Arizona is a sovereign state, meaning New Mexico can't tell us what to do. Yeah. Right. United States is a sovereign nation, meaning parliament can't tell us what to do. Yeah. Right. So there's. So if providence has to do with ability to control, sovereignty has to do with the right to control. And so we wrestle with both those things for different reasons, right? There's the, does God have a right? And there's this, to what extent does God have or does he leverage the ability? So when I talk to folks who wrestle with God's sovereignty or his providence, uh, the, on the one hand, there's, this is a, probably the biggest group of people I talk to there's real heartbreak over the lost. Like there are people who don't know Jesus who are their friends, neighbors, siblings, parents, children, and they're going, God made it that way. Yeah. I've heard people describe it as it feels like God's playing this game of duck, duck, damned. Yeah. And you kind of imagine this very callous, you know, uncaring, 
Yeah, you so, know, you're so, going, to, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to hell. You're yeah. going to hell. Like, and, and it, especially it, that, pe- that definitely feels like, whoa, wait a minute. Does that mean we're just puppets? Does that mean God is just yeah. pulling the strings? Like, is there any hope for my yeah, so, so I'd loved say the, one? The best reason that people wrestle with stuff like that is they have this big heart for evangelism, big heart people who don't know Jesus, and they really are going. God sent out His church to do event to announce the good news that people be converted unto him and follow him as disciples. And you're saying that the mission of the church is just uh, an illusion. Like we're all doing WWF evangelism out here. You know, like it's all scripted yeah. pretend. Right. Right. Yeah. And if this is true, then does it matter what I say? Does it matter if I have answers to people's questions? And can God be good if there's all these people who die not knowing him, if God picked it that way? So there's, so people who really love the lost, people who love are from God. And so it's as honestly like their healthily ordered love for people who don't know Jesus that makes them go like, oh, this is hard for me. The other side is unhealthy, which I would say is more born of an issue that needs to be repented of, which is this kind of gut level sense of I follow Jesus because I did the research and I looked at the worldviews and I have picked the best path and I have selected this based on my education and my knowledge and my understanding, and I made the right decision. So I'm a Christian because I make the right decisions. Those other people are non-Christians because they make the wrong decisions. And people now, pe- now to to push back on you a little bit, I've never heard anyone articulate it like that. Yes, like that. That feels like you're trying to strip back what you think is actually happening in their heart, but no one would articulate it like that. No one's like, "Well, I'm a Christian because I'm just smarter than everybody else, and I made better choices." I don't know many people that would say that. We I, might functionally think that. Do you agree? I've talked to four people who have spoken like that. Oh, okay. They were all at my previous church, and they left once I came on staff. So, okay, it's, it was only like no, like part of the human process is to research your worldviews and pick them. And God made us rational animals, and so okay. what I would say, like, so that's what people, those four people, literally said that, which I think was just they probably like they barely believed in salvation by grace. They believed in salvation through rational inquiry. Yeah. Right. And well, but and I research. can think for me, like I, I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have articulated that, but when I'm sitting there at steak and shake after my freshman year, hearing about my new Calvinist friend and learning what that is part of my like, Ooh, I don't like that was this feeling of like, well, but I thought I made a real choice. I thought I, I thought I chose God. What do you mean? He chose me. Like yeah. I, I thought I really, I raised my hand. I walked down that aisle. Yeah. I got, are you my telling knees. me that my choice was like, not really my choice. And it was, just like what like that that didn't that didn't feel right yeah it, and so for for people who are not that extreme but otherwise there is like this but my experience and my history and my story make it sound like i was presented with new information and it resonated and my heart wanted it and so i said yes and so i decided to follow jesus and so there is kind of like this a mixed bag emotions of like, I'm trying to hold on to the fact that I chose God. Cause then I can go to my friends and say, like, I chose God. You can choose him too. Sure. Follow me as I follow him. And so there is this kind of part of us deep seated that wants to be a, a real contributor to our salvation. Yeah. Like sola grace, grace by itself, grace on its own, not mediated by a priest, not mediated by a sacrament, not mediated by, a preacher, but grace of God's absolute sheer 
volition uh, really removes all room for saying I played a part. Yeah. My, the evangelist played a part. Right? And so that's hard. Yeah. To tell can, I, you. can I give a third thing? Yeah. So I think there's the heart for the lost. There's kind of a desire to have contributed to my salvation. I think the other reason I get questions and people struggle with this is the Bible. Yeah. Right. People read, people read stuff like choose this day whom you will serve and go, well, doesn't that mean something? Or they say, uh, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. So that feels pretty broad, right? I think about first Timothy, uh, I think it's in chapter two where it says that God desires all people to be saved. Um, and, that God, you know, does not delight in the death of the wicked. And how could you, you know, and so, so I, I think that's another place where like people who go like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not arguing here for my rights. I'm looking at the Bible and going like, man, it seems like there is a lot of freedom to choose what you want. And, um, so, so I feel like that's another category. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think a, a lot of it to me really comes down to this idea this idea of uh, having a hard time inhabiting the tension of what seem like contradictory claims in scripture, but being able to hold them both at the same time. Yeah. We went to Genesis fifty twenty, which is the story of Joseph. And Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Okay. So there's one action, Joseph being sold into slavery, but there's two intentions on that one action. Yeah, when I, I love that verse because it's the same word in both cases, right? It's not saying you meant it for evil and, you, and God used it for good. Yeah, or he worked it for good or he... Yeah, which God could do. Yeah. But it is saying in the very evil action you did, God had another intention in mind. Yeah, so we call this a doctrine of concurrence or this idea of dual, uh, dual agency in every act. That God is willing and intending things and at the same time, other people are willing and intending things. And on God's side of things, he's willing and intending things for good. And on the human side of things, people are often willing and intend for evil. So his doctrine of concurrence has to do with this fact that God sovereignly and perfectly works through the real free choices of humans. Yeah. So we really make free choices. Well, do we make free choices or do we make real choices? I know you like real choices. I feel like free is fine. We are, we're always free to choose what we want. Okay. The, our but will, what we want, what we is want, in bondage is in bondage to sin and death until God heals our will. Yeah, so that, that's why I, I, I mean, you said I, I prefer to say, not that we have free will or that we make free choices, but that we make real choices. Yeah, but that yeah. those real choices are not free because true. I think true freedom is I really could do any. You know, I could make any choice, and I look and go, you can't choose God if you're dead in your sins. Yeah. And I would, I'm okay with the free will language. Cause it's like, you can freely will whatever you want. And nobody is like, I want to choose something else, but I can't choose it. Everyone is doing what they want. And so that's Jonathan Edwards ta- has his, in his book on the freedom of the will. He talks about how the will is always free to do what it wants. And until God heals our will and fixes our wanter, yeah, we freely want sin and death, but then he heals our will. And now we freely want, Jesus and God. Yeah. And so I understand why you prefer the real <laughs> choices language. It's probably more clear, but I, we're always doing what sure. we want is, is a deal is yeah. God works through our real choices that are born. But I, th- what but we I want. think the clear, I mean, 
and I'm fine with the way you said that. I think the the breakdown in in these conversations is people don't really think through how our wanter is broken. Yeah, they kind of imagine that we're like Adam and Eve, where we are kind of going back to we're kind of inherently good, and I, yeah, I'm bad, but not that bad, and I and I can choose to follow God or I can choose to take the fruit. Yeah, our desire engine, our love engine, our and wanter. we are in a post three reality. We're still made in the image of God, and in that sense, we're like Adam. But we're our our whole wanter is broken. Yeah, and this is the idea of being dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, it's not mostly dead; it's all the way dead. Yeah. That we are born desiring not the things of God, and the Spirit must work in our heart to to help us desire the things of God. This is First Corinthians thirteen. It says, "No one can say Jesus is Lord except for the Spirit." And so if there's like in our hearts a desire to say Jesus is Lord, a true one, not like my parents are making me repeat this so that I can get the snacks on Sunday morning, you know, but this, a real born of the spirit desire to say Jesus is my Lord, Jesus, the, the one true God, you know, eternally begotten of the Father, fully, fully God, fully man, he is Lord, meaning he is my God, he tells me how to live. Yeah. To say that requires the spirit giving us a new heart. And, and that's a doctrine of regeneration, that we go from having a dead heart to an alive heart. And that's the how our wanter is healed. And if anything, we think about uh, the, the healed wanter, the healed desire, the heart being changed, that that is kind of the core point where I think our church's tradition would diverge from other traditions. A lot of like more less Reformed, less Calvinistic traditions have doctrines of concurrence, and they probably would agree with us on the way it works. Mm-hmm. But the mystery of how exactly the heart goes from not wanting God to wanting God is something that we would see as being relatively countercultural to the broader evangelical tradition because we would say that's solely an act of grace. Yeah, it, it brings to mind the passage in Ezekiel 37 of the Valley of Dry Bones. Yes. You know, and it's in, he sees all these you know, dry bones and God has to say, live. And when God says it, that it, he creates what he commands and it, and all of a sudden, Oh, there's life. And we would kind of go, that's exactly what God's doing in salvation. Yeah. It's the nature of the word of the Lord. It creates. Yeah. That's from the very beginning that from by the word of the Lord, he creates. And so when the Lord says live, it's not just like the bones obey. Like they really obey, yeah. but they obey but by, by the power of the word that commanded in the first place. So he creates what he commands. Yeah. And so it's the same when, when Jesus says, repent and believe. Like when that is effective in our hearts, it's because the spirit has said it to our hearts and we repent and we believe. And so we really do obey. And the power and we of really our, And we really do want to. We really want to. And we really choose to. But the ability to choose, the ability to want, the ability to hear, to is supplied by the spirit that he creates what he commands in us by his spirit giving us a new heart. Yeah, you can talk about it like there's um, everyone has permission to come to God, but until God makes you alive by his spirit, you don't have the ability. Yeah, that's the John three sixteen. Whoever will believe is welcome. Absolutely. That's called the general call. That's the call that goes to all people. In this sense, all people are invited, but not all want to come. And so Genesis three sixteen is describing the general call of God. But we would hold this idea of what we call like the special call of God or the saving call of God or the salvific call of God, which is when the Spirit gives us a new heart and brings us home. Yeah. So I got two questions maybe to to close this out. One is, the first one is this. 
why does this matter? Like, so what? What's the big deal? Because I think there's a kind of person that would go like, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, okay, God's in charge. Also, we make real choices, and like, who cares? Like, why would you even devote a whole sermon to this? Why would we have classes about this? Why do we think this matters? So the the first and main answer is part of growing into maturity in Christ is bringing our mind into conformity with his mind. It's trying to submit all of our views to the scriptures as they are taught. And so one, we just want to be faithful by agreeing with God on reality. So that's one reason why it matters. We just want to agree with God. That's yeah. that's a good thing to want. The second piece is it takes our view of salvation by grace alone and really makes it go all the way down. Hmm. Like it's really of grace alone, not grace and our good intentions, not grace and our faith, not grace and our choices, not grace. That salvation by grace alone, that that grace creates the faith that binds us and causes us to trust God in the first place. And so it ought to, this is one of the hard things, like even you talked about the word Calvinist, most of the Calvinists, if you go on YouTube and type in Calvinist, the people talking are not people I want to be like. They tend to not right. feel like Jesus to me. They sure. tend to be bombastic, argumentative, uh, ironically prideful people. And they just seem like, oh, that guy is. And so, but if we really get the doctrines of grace, there is, will be a slow to speak humility that it creates because we'll understand the miracle of salvation. We won't be trying to like, hardcore pressure people into what they don't have the ability to do, but there will just be this prayerful dependence on the spirit must go before me or I'm not doing anything. Like there's no, mm-hmm. there's nothing. So it ought to create this prayerful dependence and humility if we really get this, which sadly sometimes or often it's not really what it does. So that's one reason why it matters. Yeah. I think it also matters just because of the freedom it gives us. Yeah. I mean, ultimately Aligning with God's mind and heart is, is the main reason it matters. But I do think it gives you freedom to go like, I I can be bolder and I can be um, more prayerful and I can be like, I don't have to get it exactly right. I don't, I don't have to say, man, this is exact. Oh man. And, th- and then if, if someone doesn't respond right now, I'm not, it's not like, man, I, it's my fault. And if I had only, and so I think the freedom that it gives a Christian is, is significant. So so those are some reasons it matters. Here's here's my my last question is so we talked about you talked about these kind of three right there's the person who objects kind of for missionary type reasons for mission reasons. There's a person who objects because of kind of more pride and I want to take some credit reasons. There's the Bible reasons. There's lots of questions. I mean tons and tons of questions. We could do lots of podcasts about the different answering the different questions related to this. Do you feel though like there's kind of a key thing that like when somebody really gets blank, you know, whatever it is, when they get X, it kind of, the gears all start kind of working together to go, okay, I can embrace the doctrines of grace. I can embrace that God saves sinners, you know, but, but until this thing lands, all these other questions, they aren't going to quite link up. Yeah. I can tell you what it was for me. And it's more of an emotional process than it is otherwise and when i was wrestling through this a ton especially when i was 19 to 21 you know reading all the books and dealing with all the stuff i had to come to grips with this thing that god could have saved nobody and that would have been just Hmm. 
like I had to really kind of emotionally wrestle through that, that if I really believe what the Bible teaches about sin and damnation and the authority of God and the right of God and the fate of humanity, that if God, like the Father, Son, and Spirit, were like, yeah, we're not going to send Jesus to die for the sins of the world, that he could have done that. That was yeah. a free choice the Lord could have made to save nobody. Yeah. That God could have decided to save nobody and that would have been just, and that would have been fair, and that would have been getting what we deserve. And getting to the point where I'm going, where I'm like emotionally going, not just God didn't need to save me, but God could have saved nobody, and that would have been just. Yeah. Because sometimes, like the re- reject, the, the resistance in my own heart was, well, why doesn't God save everybody? You know, it's like the real question is, why does God save anybody? Not sure. why does God, why doesn't God save everybody? The question is, why does God save anybody? And when you get to that point like that emotional process i find then it was easier for me to understand the sovereign work of god and saving some yeah as pure grace as blessing well that's what i think is people are you know we're resisting it feels unfair but when you go okay god could have saved everybody god could have saved nobody and god could have saved some and all three are just of God. Um, he can't save anyone. I mean, he isn't going to save anyone without someone paying the price for it, right? So yes. Jesus has to come in order to save some. But I think, you know, a lot of us, I, I just think about it with my kids. It's like if I said, okay, uh, tonight Hank's going to get dessert and uh, and Abby's going to get dessert. Caitlin, Mary, sorry. You're just, I just decided to not give you dessert. They'd be like, what? That's not fair, right? Because it's kind of like, well, we, none of us should get dessert or all of us should get dessert, but for some of us to get dessert just doesn't feel fair. And uh, maybe my analogy is not great, but it, it connects with the emotional experience that you're talking about. Yeah. And so at some point, you, you, until you feel like, hey, nobody deserves this, and even the people who are going to get saved, it's not because they deserved it. It's because of God's grace and mercy and kindness. Yeah, and for me, it was just helpful to really locate that is the stumbling block for me. Yeah. That is the emotional deal. Is It is the, there's this guy with image bearers, and he chooses to bless some of them, even though none of them deserve to be blessed. And it's like, well, that's what the Bible teaches. So I have And, to- and we instantly then go in and go, well, why? Yeah. Well, why? Why them? Why me? You know, hopefully it's why me. <laughs> yeah. Why would he save me? I mean, I, I feel like that is a little bit of, well, that's as that you experience song, grace, you go like, gosh, why would he save me? That's that song we sing here sometimes. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Mm. But this I know with all my heart. The Lord has paid my ransom. Right. That I can't give an answer to why me. Yeah. And the Bible does not give an answer to why me. Even it says like. The closest it gets is like. Because you were the worst in the Old Testament. Yeah. I chose you, Israel, because you're the worst of everyone. Well, so, in, the, in the New Testament is more like, and just because I wanted to. Yeah. F- for my good pleasure, for the praise of my glory and grace. Like, Yeah. And this may be a separate episode, but we, could, we can speculate as to the why. But God, part of the other deal is we have to realize that God does not show us all his cards. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. Yeah. And we have to get get over that too. Yeah. This, uh. This idea of humanity's sovereign one over the universe with the with our minds and hearts is another thing we have to let die is just this there is one who knows more than us who does yeah. not owe us answers and we have to kind of 
deal with that. So those are like the big, that was the big emotional process for me mm-hmm. was having to come in grips with that. If God saved nobody, he'd been well within his rights and would have been just. So God saves sinners. And uh, man, that is, that's good news. I mean, I just feel like even the more I walk with the Lord, the more I realize how much I need his grace. And, uh, you know, um, as of this recording, uh, my birthday was yesterday mm. and I got this great picture from uh, Molly and Caitlin. Sorry, I get emotional about it. it. It brought me to tears in the moment. And it's, it's of this turtle on a fence post. And Molly asked Caitlin to draw it and she did. And, and that, that image has meant a lot to me for a lot of reasons. You know, if you, if you ever saw a turtle on a fence post, you would think that turtle didn't get there on its own. Yeah. Someone had to put it there. And I think, um, and I've usually thought about that in terms of just all the different people. I think about my parents and I think about different mentors and different coaches. And I think about Tom Schrader and I think about Chris Mueller and I think about, uh, so many people who have, you know, helped put me on a fence post, but, I think maybe at the core of what I love about that image is that it's it's the Lord. The Lord's had to put me on the fence post. And I feel like that picture, um, part of why I get emotional about it is just it's this picture of grace. And as much as anything, that's um, that's what I love about what this truth has done in my own heart is just cause me to shrink, cause God to get bigger, um, and hopefully it aligns me more with his heart. Amen. So, well, um, this has been a fun conversation, Seth. It's great to have you back and, uh, I don't know where we'll go next, but I hope you all will uh, join us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks and, uh, that's it. Have a great day. See you later.